Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's have a few moments of silent prayer. And if you need the opportunity to make sure you're in fellowship, you can avail yourself of that, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in your word we have eternal truth, truth that we can rely on every day in every situation and circumstance in life, that in your word we have an understanding of how you are working in history, and since our lives are part of history, even the important doctrines that relate to your plans and purposes in the future relate to our individual role in your plan and thus our spiritual life today. Now, Father, as we continue our study in Revelation, we pray that you'd help us to see how these things relate to our thinking, changing our perspective, that we may have our thoughts transformed by your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're in Revelation chapter 11. While you're turning there, um, one announcement. This coming Saturday, April the 4th, We'll have a ladies' prayer brunch here. You are instructed to bring a sack lunch. Dessert and beverage will be provided. Also, one other announcement. Uh, a couple of people who will hear this announcement will know that they're, uh, they're involved logistically. Uh, this year, Passover is April the 9th, which is a week from Thursday. So I'm going to do a Passover presentation on Thursday night. So we need to set up for that. And um, we'll have, I'll go ahead and we'll set up a table down here with all of the uh, things that are needed for that. But we'll do that. And that's always something that people find interesting. Some people haven't ever seen that before and they don't understand uh, the, the, the tremendous lessons that are in the Passover meal in relation not only to the Lord's table, but also to the person work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we'll do a Passover uh, presentation on Passover next week. All right, we're in Revelation chapter 11, and we're in this section of the book uh, of Revelation called the, that uh, I'm calling the Little Book Prophecies, coming out of the little book that the mighty angel uh, gave to the Apostle John in Revelation chapter 10. And I believe that the uh, these chapters go back and bring us up to date, as it were, of the other things that are going on during the first half of the tribulation period. So that chapter 11 focuses on the ministry of the two witnesses, the, these two probably Old Testament prophets, uh, are they are at least uh, resurrected and brought back, or they are ministering in the same power of Moses and Elijah, these two witnesses, and the remnant. Remnant is Israel. So the focal point is what happens with Israel, and what happens with Israel as a result of the witness of these two witnesses is that uh, after they ascend to heaven, there's a tremendous earthquake in Jerusalem, and the text says that 7,000 were killed and all the rest gave glory to the God of heaven. And I believe that is when the majority of the Jews that are living in Israel will finally turn to Jesus Christ, accepting him as their Messiah. Now, that is not when the corporate nation is saved. That doesn't occur until the second coming. Uh, that is the physical deliverance of Israel when, as a nation, they accept him. As, as Messiah. But this has to do with the regeneration of those who are living, in, the Jews living in Jerusalem. Chapter 12 will continue 
to give revelation about what happens to the remnant going back to a brief history of the of Israel who is depicted as the woman giving birth to the male child who's Jesus Christ and takes us up to the point of of the woman fleeing into the wilderness which is what happens after the abomination of desolation the midpoint of the tribulation then we're told about the reign of terror from the two beasts there's the dragon who is Satan, who is the real power behind the uh, international global kingdom of the Antichrist, who is the first beast, and the false prophet, the second beast. But nevertheless, even in this period, there will be a tremendous outpouring of God's grace through these three angelic announcements. Now, last time we began to look at this and just looked at the first verse in this section that comes at the uh, at the end of chapter 11 chapter uh, verses 1 through 14 describe the ministry of the two witnesses and then beginning in verse 15 through 19 there is an interlude where we are once again before the throne of God in heaven and this introduces the blast of the seventh trumpet And I pointed out last time that this seventh trumpet, we will learn, contains the seven vile judgments or bold judgments. Vile is the translation of the King James. Bold is the modern translation. So it is. it covers a lengthy period of time, and the time I believe it takes to carry out these last seven judgments cover the last half of the tribulation period. Now there's something, there's several things that are said that are significant in this verse. The seventh angel sounds or loud voices in heaven. These would comprise the resurrected church, the angels, the four living creatures. We're not told specifically who says this, but it, it seems that it would involve all of them stating that the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Now, because of what we're going to get into in the next verse, I want to again remind you of the difference here in this statement between the Lord, which is, um, in the King James at least, is well, it's not uppercase in the King James. The Lord refers to God the Father, and Christ refers to Jesus Christ, that is the term uh, for the Messiah. And this emphasizes the distinction between these two persons of the Trinity. And it's important to keep track of what the Father's called and what Jesus is called in Revelation because you can easily get confused at places. And Almost without exception, there's a couple of exceptions later on, almost without exception in Revelation, the Father is referred to as the Lord. Usually the full title that he is called is the Lord God Almighty. The, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, is usually referred to as the Lamb. That is the predominant title in the book of Revelation. And to keep that distinction, and sometimes they're so close, and we're going to look at, you're going to learn a new word tonight. A new, it's, it's not, it's a new doctrine to you, but it's a new word, so I just always love introducing everybody to new concepts. And it may help you think through some, how we understand some of these passages. So the statement here is the kingdom of the world has become past tense, but it hasn't actually happened yet because this occurs right after the midpoint of the tribulation. The kingdom of the Lord is not established until he returns at the end of the second three-and-a-half-year period. But this is stated in a way that we refer to as a, prog- uh, as a prophetic tense Prophetic use of the aorist tense or a proleptic use of the tense. And the word proleptic is a word that means that you are, that, that some event is seen in the future and it's so certain that uh, you put yourself there as if it is a present reality or you're talking about it as if it is a present reality even though it's a future event. 
And so they say the kingdom of the world has become, because with the completion of the seven bowl judgments or the seventh trumpet judgment, the kingdom of kingdoms of the world or the kingdom of the world will have been destroyed and Jesus Christ will establish his kingdom. Now, you'll also note if you're using a King James or New King James translation that they put an S on the end of the word kingdom, and that is a textual uh, problem, and it's only found in a few manuscripts. Unfortunately, those few manuscripts were the heart and soul of the of the text, what was called the Textus Receptus, or the, the eight Greek manuscripts, the eight or nine Greek manuscripts that were the foundation of the, uh, tr- the King James translation. So the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and then we have the use of this term, uh, the kingdom of the world. And what is the kingdom of the world? And last time I just briefly alluded to this, and so tonight I want to expand on this just a little bit. The kingdom of the world is a term that is used to describe all that man has tried to accomplish in order to make uh, make life work apart from God. The Greek word that's translated there for world is the Greek word cosmos, and cosmos is used a couple of different ways in Scripture. Some ways it just refers to the physical earth, the physical world, but in other senses it refers to the whole world system that uh, man operates in independence from God. And so in that sense it refers to not just the system of the world, but it refers to the thought system that makes that up. And we see in Scripture that there is a juxtaposition between the thinking of the world, the thinking of man in independence from God, and the thinking of God. The thinking of the world is not just the thinking that generates from man himself, but it has a parallel in that it is uh, synonymous to and is an outgrowth of the thinking of the God of this world, which is Satan. In John 12:31, Jesus makes the statement, now is the judgment of this world. And he's talking about uh, what will take place on the cross. See, he's talking proleptically there as well, because when he makes this statement in John 12, it's a day or two before the cross, and it is not while he is on the cross. He says, now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Well, the casting out of the world ruler and the judgment of the world, actually, even though sins are judged on the cross, the actual defeat of that kingdom and the uh, throwing out of Satan when he is cast into the lake of fire don't occur until he comes back the second time. So he is talking... Uh, it's, it's the cross that secures that. And because he defeats Satan at the cross, it secures his eventual defeat so he can talk about the defeat of the world system and the kingdoms of the world and the ruler of the world in a present tense as if, it's a, as if it uh, has happened, but it doesn't happen for at least 2,000 years. Now, as Satan is the ruler of the world, that means that the thinking in the world really imitates the thinking of Satan. And the thinking of Satan is grounded in arrogance, in his own assertion that he can do what God can do. It's, it's sort of uh, summarized in those five I will statements in Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 through 14, where he concludes saying, I will be like God. Satan wants to be like God. So there is an antagonism. There's, there's an arrogance on the one hand that, that focuses on the creature's ability to take over the role of the creator. And secondly, there is an antagonism to God and everything that God is trying to do. So there are these two elements that relate to the thinking of the world. There is the independence from God on the one hand, the uh, making the creature, uh, the, the, uh, the creator, and then on the other hand, there's the attempt to uh, 
there's a hostility to anything that God is going to do. That's what we see in the attitude of the, those, uh, of the earth dwellers throughout the tribulation period. So the world then manifests the kind of thinking of its uh, founder, which is Satan, and this antagonism and hatred toward God and those who are aligned with him is what Jesus refers to in John chapter 15, verses 18 to 19, where he states, if the world hates you, and that is and recognition that when we are obedient to God's word, we are, we're setting ourselves to be 180 degrees opposite the world system. And as James states in James, uh, uh, James chapter 4, that friendship with the world is enmity with God. We can't find some middle ground where we can become acceptable to the thinking of the world and not offensive to the thinking of the world. And the more that, that our culture moves away from its historic Judeo-Christian foundation, and we're moving away at breakneck speed, the speed at which we are, are falling into paganism is increasing geometrically. I mean, every year it just, it's, it's more rapid than we ever imagined. And the last year just seems, uh, it's unbelievable how the culture is moving. But, but the world is acting like the world. And we, and, and I think for a long time, in some ways this is a good thing for us because I think that for a long time, Christians in America became rather complacent because we lived in a world system that was somewhat camouflaged in terms of its real evil, its hostility, its antagonism to us, and so we became complacent. But if you're a Bible-believing Christian, you can't be complacent anymore. I mean, there is a battle going on raging around us, and we can't just sit back and fold our hands and think that, that, that somehow we can just live our life untouched. And so Jesus made the same kind of statement to the disciples, that they would be re- rejected by those around them. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. Then verse 19, if you were of the world... The world would love its own, yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So our our values, our thinking, uh, what we would like to see accomplished is always going to be the opposite of the world around us, and we're all, always going to feel those frustrations. And we have to recognize that that we are not going to be able to to win that battle this side of the second coming. And so we can, I think on the one hand, this is the dichotomy, the tension Christians feel. On the one hand, we need to be involved because there's the, the disciples just didn't sit back and go into a monastery. They went out and they taught the word and they were actively involved in proclaiming the truth and providing the only solution there is, which is salvation, the cross, and the word of God. And on the other hand, we have to recognize that we can only do so much. This is the devil's world after all, and people are going to act that way, and so we can relax a little bit uh, and not become so, uh, think that we're so defeated and everything is so terrible. Uh, We've been very blessed in this nation and in this country, but we need to recognize that that we're on on a greased slide into... Uh, much worse situations than we've ever seen, especially when it comes to Christianity. I saw today that um, the first judicial nominee from the Obama administration for a circuit court position is a man who has stated in other, uh, other things that he has written that he does not believe that it's, it's uh, legitimate to have what he calls sect, or what the law calls sectarian prayers, which would mean Christian prayers, but that it's okay to have prayers in the name of Allah, but we just can't pray in the name of Jesus. So the the pure pagan relativistic worldview that dominates the government today 
is working itself out in these kinds of appointments. And this is what is going to radically change our culture over the next four years, is especially the uh, these judicial appointments. But this is what we should expect. The world is acting like its own, and the world hates us. Uh, Jesus said, though, that we can relax and we can have joy even in the midst of all of this opposition. In John 16:33, he said, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. We, and this isn't talking about reconciliation peace because he's talking to the disciples who are already believers. He said, in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. There's always going to be adversity. He's not talking about tribulation with a capital T there. He's talking about just the adversity, the antagonism, the hostility that Christians will face in taking the gospel to people who are... Um, God-haters and, and suppressors of truth. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. In other words, relax and be happy. Have joy because I have overcome the world. He had already overcome the world and the cosmic system by means of his own uh, spiritual life. And then in John 18:36, Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world... My servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews, but now my kingdom is not from here. So the kingdom of God is not going to be established through the militancy of Christians. Now that's what, that's what Islam, Islamic eschatology is going to do. And what you're seeing today sometimes is people who are uh, confusing or they are imputing to Christians Islamic uh, radical eschatology because they want to lump all religious fundamentalists into the same lump. And in Islamic eschatology, what has to happen, especially in the Shiite version, but the Sunnis have a slightly different version, but the, the Shia, Shia version is the one we should be concerned with because that's what's uh, motivating Ahmadinejad and the uh, radicals in Iran is that that they believe that there's going to be a a world chaos that will come into uh, existence and it is at that time that this uh, next imam is going to appear and he's called the Mahdi and the Mahdi is going to lead this uh, great war and destroy all the Christians and all the uh, all the Jews. Now, there was a Mahdi who attempted to start a, a uh, war back in the late 19th century, in the 1880s and 1890s in Sudan, and that's the basis for the film, uh, which is based on a true story, Khartoum, which is about how they um, uh, con- conquered Khartoum and killed uh, General uh, Charles Gordon at the time. It's a great story, great film. Char- um, Charlton Heston played the role of Charles Gordon, who was a fascinating uh, 19th century Victorian figure and a, a believer, somewhat mystic believer with some odd ideas about different things. But he was, um, he was a fascinating figure. He went through the Middle East. He was some, sort of a, everybody, Victorian men thought they were many different things. They were biologists and archaeologists, and they were exploring all the areas of life. And he thought he was an archaeologist, and he would go to the Middle East, and he would find his own place where he thought Jesus was crucified, not the traditional site. He had his own tomb uh, for Jesus, not the traditional site. And he had several other. He had his own Ararat. Uh, so he was uh, he was sort of a, a, an extremely independent thinker, one might say. But that's a great story. But see, the issue is we've got a guy now who's trying to get nuclear weapons in order to create enough chaos for the uh, next imam to come, for the, I think it's the, what, the 12th imam, is it 12th, right? Yeah, 12th imam to come back, and to bring in the uh, paradise for, for Islam. So this is not what Christians do. Christians are passive to God's plan. God's going to, the, I mean, Jesus is going to return at the rapture, but not, there's nothing we can do to speed it up. But see, you have people who come along today and try to say that, that these Christians who are all concerned about prophecy, uh, you know, the left behind crowd, Tim LaHaye and the 
pre-tribbers and all these people who are studying Bible prophecy, they really want to try to do something to generate uh, or speed up Armageddon, speed up the coming of Christ at the tribulation. And this couldn't be any further from the truth. The only, if, it, if that were true, then we would be seeing some Christian fundamentalists trying to uh, blow up the Dome of the Rock or trying to do other things of that nature, and that's never happened. There have been one or two cases of, of uh, religious wackos or political wackos who have tried to do that, but they're not fundamentalist Christians, but we're the ones who, uh, who get the blame. But Jesus says that he is going to come. He's the one who's going to establish his kingdom. And there's nothing that we can do to, to speed up that process. And that's never been... I've even heard some evangelicals, not dispensationalists. I've even heard some evangelicals say, well, this whole, the whole Zionist movement has just, is just an example of self-fulfilled prophecy. This was just a bunch of... Uh, uh, you dispensationalists who got out there and tried to uh, make the point that if we would get Israel back in the land, then Jesus would come back. And that, that just betrays an incredible historical ignorance. The trouble is so many Christians are ignorant of history and ignorant of the history of, of, of prophecy studies in the 19th century in Zionism that they don't realize how, how impossible it would be for any group to do that. And, and a couple of years ago, I went through the series on Israel, past, present, and future, and went through all of the details. But there were so many different movements that all sprung up around the world at the same time. In, in, um, in the uh, Eastern Europe, you had various rabbis and small Jewish communities begin to write uh, books saying that it was okay for Jews to go back to the land without the Messiah coming first. That had always that had been the belief among Jews since since the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. that that Jews could not legitimately return to the land and establish a, Jew, a Jewish state unless the Messiah came first. And all of a sudden, you had a few uh, rabbis beginning to think that well, it it would be okay. And and at the same time that they're writing this, you have a, uh, a birth of evangelistic zeal among Anglican, primarily not dispensationalists, because dispensationalists said you don't want to get involved in at all with politics. You don't. They, in fact, among the uh, Plymouth Brethren, uh, you weren't even supposed to vote if you were a Christian. You know, you were just supposed to be as far removed from anything of the world that you possibly could be. And so they didn't have anything to do with this. This was just premillennial Anglicans that um, recognized that God had a future plan for Israel. And so they believed that there was a, they should do what they could to evangelize Jews and to help Jews get back to their traditional homeland. And then you had the Tsar in Russia who controlled most of the domains where about 80% of the, of the Jewish diaspora lived in Eastern Europe and in Western Russia. And he would begin to persecute Jews. And this happened five or six times in the 19th century. You would have a Russian pogrom that would begin to persecute the Jews just before that would happen, the Jews would say, somebody would say something about, provide some framework for them going back, and then there would be the persecution. So you'd have a, a, a bunch of Jews leave Eastern Europe, leave the Pale of Settlement. Some would go to Western Europe, some would go to the United States, and there were always a group that would go to Israel. And then there were these Anglican missions. They had established a church in 1840, the first Protestant church in Jerusalem, and a Protestant bishop, and they had this set up a framework for evangelism and for sustenance when these doctors and lawyers and merchants ended up in ended up in Israel, and they couldn't farm, and the land had been had not been worked and taken care of for uh, eighteen hundred years, and they would were starving to death, and they were uh, dying of disease and all of these other things. And there were these Christian missionaries that were there who were 
opening up their arms to them and giving them the gospel and giving them food and taking care of them. And so you have all these kinds of things happening all over uh, Europe and England and Scandinavia and Russia. There's no way any one person could have orchestrated that. It doesn't have anything to do with trying to manipulate history or trying to create a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's simply fulfilling the mandates of Scripture to witness, to treat the Jews well, to be pro, uh, pro-Jewish, and to recognize that they have a right to their traditional uh, homeland. And so Jesus is indicates this mentality that his kingdom is not of this world. It's not going to come in through... Uh, fighting through warfare, through the ways that man would establish a kingdom and that it would come eventually. And as believers, we recognize that we are set completely against the mentality of the world and that the mentality of the world is uh, juxtaposed to the thinking of God, the Word of God, as in passages like 1 Corinthians 2.12, We have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. And I don't think that's uh, taken there to be the uh, Holy Spirit, but I think that in the context that's talking about regeneration, we have received the spirit who is from God, human spirit, regeneration, that we might know the things, and in the context the things, there's the revelation of God, that which God has revealed, that eye has not seen, ear has not heard, back in verse 9, and that have been freely given to us by God. And so the word of God is juxtaposed to the spirit of the world. Now, when we get into Revelation 11, uh, 15, it talks about the kingdom of this world. That goes back to Daniel. And in Daniel chapter 2, we have the image that appears to Nebuchadnezzar that uh, was a prophetic look at the history of the kingdom of man. The kingdom of man, the kingdom of the world. is, And the perspective is this is how the kingdom looked from man's perspective. It's glorious. The head of gold, the chest of silver, the torso, waist area of brass, the legs and hip of iron, and then uh, below that, the mix of iron and clay. And so this traces the progression of the kingdoms of the world from Babylon to the media, Persia, Greece, Rome, uh, Roman Empire, concluding with the fact that in the days of these kings, when this kingdom is viewed as one integrated whole, when this kingdom is destroyed, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom uh, which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. This then is pictured in a different way in verse 15, I mean in, uh, in chapter 7. Chapter 7 looks at, these key, at the kingdom of man, though, from a bestial viewpoint. Babylon is presented as a lion with eagle's wings, the media Persian Empire is uh, pictured as a bear with three ribs in its mouth. Uh, the Greek Empire is pictured as a uh, four-headed and four-winged leopard. And then the uh, Roman Empire is pictured as this indescribable beast with ten horns. And then there's going to be this event at the end where those ten horns are conquered by a little horn and that's the last form of the Roman Empire, which is the revived Roman Empire. And the little horn is actually the beast of Revelation 13, which is the Antichrist. And at the end of that, we see that it's the Son of Man who's given this everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is set up through the defeat of the kingdom of, uh, the kingdom of man. So then we come to the last part of the verse. It talks about our Lord and his Christ. And here we have reference to Jesus Christ. The the term Christos refers to the fact that he is the anointed one, or you might say the appointed one, who has been established on to bring in the kingdom. He is the Son of Man. The Hebrew word is Mashiach. And then you have other passages 
that I looked at last time, like Psalm 22, uh, 27 to 28, Psalm 72, all talk about his future kingdom that's established. But the key passage we looked at was Psalm 2. And Psalm 2 is really the background for the uh, hit this event in Revelation 11 because it talks about how the kings of the earth take their stand against the Lord and his anointed. And see, there we have, again, the two personages, the Lord, meaning God the Father, and his anointed, his Mashiach, the Christ, the same two personages we have mentioned in 11, uh, Revelation 11:15. Now, I want to go come back and look at the next verse and a couple of things that we see coming up in 16 and 17. In verse 16, we read, as a response to this, this blast of the trumpet, the 24 elders who are sitting on the thrones before God will fall on their faces and they worship God. They fall upon their faces and they worship God. They are bowing down in obedience uh, to Him. And this relates to one of the key meanings of the word for worship, which is the Greek verb proskuneo, which has the idea of bowing the knee or bowing down before, and it's a recognition of the authority of the ruler. And so in this passage, we see an aspect of worship of God is recognizing his authority to do what he is doing in history. And that runs through worship. When we talk about worship on Sunday morning, it is the believer coming, believers coming together in the body of Christ to submit themselves to the teaching of God, the teaching of his word, so that they can conform their thinking to God's thinking. It is not simply a time to come together and have fellowship or to uh, enjoy being with other believers. It is a time to, that is oriented towards submission to God. Now, these 24 elders need to be identified. We did, I've done this before, but I want to do, give a summary of it. There are different views on who the 24 elders are. There are some who think the 24 elders are angels. There are others who think that the 24 elders just represent, uh, uh, 12 represent the church, 12 represent uh, Israel, 24 being a a summary of 12 and 12, so you have the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 uh, disciples. But actually, the 24 elders must be understood to be the uh, resurrected, glorified, and rewarded church-age believers. The 24 elders are actually 24 representatives of the mass of church-age believers. Old Testament saints haven't been resurrected yet, um, I mean, tribulation saints haven't, and so we just have the church-age believers. These are the, um, they're called elders. The term presbyteroi is a word that is never, ever used anywhere of angels. They're elders. The term elders is a term that emphasizes maturity. And they're crowned, if we notice from back in Revelation 4 and 5, they have their Stephanos crown, which indicates that they are rewarded. So the term elders is a good term because it, it emphasizes the maturity. These are the overcomer uh, believers who've been rewarded. Um, second point is that at no point is there mention of these 24 elders in heaven prior to the events of Revelation 4. There's no mention of them in any of the Old Testament passages, such as Isaiah 6, when Isaiah is before the throne of God, or any of the other uh, uh visions in the Old Testament that relate to heaven. Third thing we note is that the prophecies in Daniel are the frame of reference reference for the book of Revelation. And again and again, what we see as, as we go through Revelation is how important it is to go back and understand these prophecies in Daniel. Daniel 2, as we just saw, as well as Daniel 7. Now, in Daniel 7... Verse 9, Daniel says, I watched in his vision of heaven, and the heavenly throne scene. He says, I watched till thrones were put in place. So these are the thrones that the 24 elders are sitting on. 
And the Ancient of Days was seated. The Ancient of Days is God the Father. The Ancient of Days is not Jesus Christ. Some of you may not realize that, but you were taught that at one time. Just take it by faith. And the reason was, is that the description of the Ancient of Days given in Daniel 7-9 is similar to the vision that John has of the Lord Jesus Christ in Revelation chapter 1. So if you just hold your place there in Revelation 11, turn back half a dozen pages, chapters, to Revelation 1, and let's read the initial description that John gives when Jesus appeared to him on the Isle of Patmos. In verse uh, 13, he says in a, that uh, he, he heard a voice, he turned, and he saw someone standing in the midst of seven golden lampstands. And he, in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man. See, there's your connection. The Son of Man. Now, what you see in Daniel 7 is the one who appears before, not in this verse, but a couple of verses later, the one who appears before the Ancient of Days is the Son of Man. Now, the, so he sees one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. And when Daniel describes the Ancient of Days in Daniel 7, he says that his garment was white as snow, the hair of his head was like pure wool, and his throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. So there, because of this similarity, there have been those down through uh, church history who have tried to identify, they've tried to identify uh, the Ancient of Days as the Lord Jesus Christ. And this really leads to some, some terrible, uh, terrible problems. In Daniel chapter, in Daniel 7, um, we have the introduction of the term, let's see what verse is that in, the introduction of the term Son of Man comes out of Daniel, uh, Daniel chapter 7, when the one who is the Son of Man comes before uh, the, the uh, throne of God. Apparently, I'm just reading past it and missing it. But seven uh, thirteen. I am. Not. Yeah. Then I heard a holy one speaking. Another holy one said to the certain one who was speaking, "How long will be the vision concerning the daily sacrifices, the transgression, the giving of both?" Blah blah blah. No, there's no mention of Son of Man there. Oh, I'm in. Sorry, I'm in Daniel eight. No wonder I can't find it. I have to look in the right. Uh, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven, and he came to the Ancient of Days. So you have two personages there, the Son of Man and the Ancient of Days. And you have to maintain that distinction. So even though there are certain similarities in the appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ in Revelation 1 to the Ancient of Days, you have to maintain uh, maintain that distinction. Now, we, I want to remind you of the fact that when the Lord was on the earth, he made the statement that I and the Father are one. And in his explanation of that, we, we see that what the Father thinks, the Son thinks, and what the Son thinks, the Father thinks, so that at times it's almost impossible to distinguish whether the term God or Lord is focusing on one member of the Trinity or another. And sometimes we push it too far and we say, this has got to be the Father, this has got to be the Son. And there's a solution to that we'll get to in just a minute. But you see this problem in Daniel 7 where people always try to say, well, Jesus Christ is the only one that's ever, ever uh, been seen, and so they go through the Old Testament, and every time the Lord is mentioned, is speaking to anybody, it's always Jesus. You do that, you don't have the Father in the Old Testament at all, which is how far some people have taken it. We'll come back to that in a minute. The fourth point, 
The number 24, why is it 24? It's not just a symbolic number. It's a literal number. There is a literal number of 24, and it's based on the representative priesthood in Israel. So that when you had a mass of, of uh, priests who were qualified to serve in the temple, they would take 24. So they functioned as representatives of the entire body. And every uh, month, another set of 24 uh, would serve. You see a similar concept in that we have a Congress, a House of Representatives. Not all Americans can go to Washington, D.C. and take a seat in Congress, so we send our representatives. And those representatives change every couple of years when we have an election. Not nearly frequently enough, maybe, but that's another topic. So the number 24 is based on a representative priesthood. It's not a symbolic priesthood. It's not symbolism. It is a representational group, and it changes uh, every so, would change every so often. The white garments that they wear are those of rewarded church-age believers, as stated in Revelation 3.5 and 3.18. Six, the golden crowns that they wear are Stephanos crowns. These are crowns that are given as a reward, not ruler crowns, which would be a diademos crown. So, Angels are never said to wear victor crowns or Stephanos crowns, only humans. And then the seventh, the function of the 24 elders as kings as priests fits the role of the glorified church, not the role of angels, as seen in Revelation 5.10, and have made you kings and priests to our God, and you shall reign on the earth. That's not a function of angels. And then... Uh, the last point, the eighth point, these 24 elders are stated to be redeemed by the blood of the Lamb in Revelation 5.9. Angels are not redeemed. So the 24 elders can't be angels. They represent church-age believers. So then when we look at Revelation uh, Revelation 11.16, uh, we see the response of the church-age believers and that is that they will fall down upon their face and worship God, and that worship, that, that sign of their uh, submission to God, is indicated by what they say. And the content of what they say is, is remarkable. They say, first of all, we give you thanks. So there is an, a grace orientation there. Gratitude is always related to grace. And as they, they, they recognize that despite all the horror and the judgment that comes upon the earth, this is something to give thanks for because God is judging, uh, sin, judging evil as it's exemplified in human history and the kingdom of the world. We give you thanks, O Lord God, the Almighty, who are and who were, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. You have taken your great power and have begun to reign. Now, who is the Lord God the Almighty in this verse? Is that God the Father or God the Son? It's both. I mean, the, the, I mean, it's, it's God the Father. Jesus Christ is going to come and he is going to reign on the earth as the messianic king. Is God the Father also reigning and ruling? Yes, he is. That's what I meant when I jumped the gun there and I said it's both. The Lord God the Almighty is a title for only the Father. When you see what they, that, that the rest of the verse, who are and who were, because you've taken your power and have begun to reign, the reigning there relates to the Father's aspect of the reign, not the Son's aspect of the reign. But they're both going to reign, uh, reign together. Let's look at some key verses. The other thing, and, and I'll clarify this as well as we go through this, is a phrase, who are and who were. We see this in the first mention of the term, the Almighty, in Revelation chapter 1, 8, with the appearance of the one who is sitting on the throne. The one who sits on the throne is always the Father. 
says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. That is a term that refers to the Father, uh, not, not to the Son. It applies to the Son later on, but initially it's a term for the Father. It can apply to both because they're both equally eternal. This is where you, people get confused is when the Father and the Son are viewed so closely together. And there is a word for this, and it is called perichoresis. I'll spell it for you. P-E-R-I-C-H-O-R-E-S-I-S. Perichoresis. And this is a very old theological term that was used to describe the interpenetration of other members of the Trinity with each other, members of the Trinity with each other. The interpenetration of each member of the Trinity with the other, so that Jesus can say, I and the Father are one. What the Father thinks, the Son thinks. What the Son thinks, the Father thinks. So that if Jesus says to Philip there in John chapter 15, when Philip says, just, just show us the Father, and Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You don't need to see the Father. You've seen me. We are that close. We have interpenetrated one another, and the unity in the Godhead is so close that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. But I'm not the Father. Okay? So that's a new vocabulary word for you, perichoresis, and it helps us to understand the unity of the Trinity as well as the distinction. And so some titles apply to both the Father and the Son, and we make a mistake when we see a, father, a, a, a title like Alpha and Omega and say, oh, that applies to Jesus at the end of Revelation. This has to be Jesus here. But it's not Jesus in Revelation 1.8. It's the, it's the Father. The term the Almighty is only used of the Father in Revelation, which is where I'm going to go through these verses and, and demonstrate that. But the other thing that, that confuses people in Revelation 1.7 is the phrase who is and who was and who is to come. Because Revelation seems to focus on Jesus coming. He's the one who comes in Revelation 19. But guess who comes in Revelation 21 in the new heaven and the new earth? The Father dwells upon the earth, so there's no need for a temple anymore. The Father is the one who's coming. The Son is coming as well. And, and therefore, you know, the, the, the Trinity is coming. So Revelation 1.8 makes it clear that it, this is God the Father. He is the one who is and who was and who is to come. Now, when we look at Revelation 11.17, Revelation 11.17 says, We give thanks, O Lord God the Almighty, who are and who were. doesn't say who is to come. Why not? Because in their proleptic framework, they are putting themselves in the future time of his coming when he, when his kingdom supplants the kingdom of the world. So they are putting themselves, as it were, in that future time slot of his, of his coming, of his kingdom taking the place of the kingdom of the world, the kingdom of our Lord and his son. So, so they're not going to say, uh, who, who is coming because they're putting themselves in that very time frame of when he does come. That's going to happen in another verse as well. So we give you thanks, O Lord God, the Almighty Word, because you have taken your great power begun to reign. Okay, we looked at Revelation 1.8 and also Revelation 4.8. Before the throne there are four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, full of eyes around and within, day and night. They do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. Who's that referring to? It's got to be the Father. Why? Because in just a couple of more verses in 5.1, they're gonna, they're, the, the one who's on the throne has a scroll in his hand, and they start looking for someone who's worthy to take the scroll, and the only one worthy to take the scroll is the Lamb. And the Lamb comes up and takes the scroll out of the hand of the Lord God the Almighty. So Lord God the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come here, is clearly the Father. So that means it's got to be the Father back in eight, and it's distinguished from the Lamb who is the Son. 
Then we have our current verse, verse 11.17, Revelation 15.3, And they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God, the Almighty, righteous and true, are your ways, King of the nations. So Revelation 15, let's pick up a little context there. John said, this is the prelude to the bold judgments. He says, and I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them the wrath of God is complete. See, it's that same idea. It's, it's proleptic. It's a future use of the, of the tense there. And I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire and those who have the victory over the beast, over his image, over his mark standing on the sea of glass, and that's before the throne of God, having harps of God. That's where they get the idea we're going to sit in heaven and play harps. Uh, they sing the song of Moses, that is, those who are before the throne. This would be the church, resurrected, rewarded church. They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God, the Almighty, righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who's this talking about? Talking about the Father, because the term Lord God Almighty only applies to the Father, and the Son is viewed as distinct, but it is the uh, Lord God Almighty, the Father, who is sitting upon the throne. Then we go to the next chapter, 16.7, I heard the altar saying, yes, O Lord God the Almighty, this would be the voice Voice of those under the altar, O Lord God, the Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. And then you skip down a few verses, and it refers to the Lord God, the Almighty, again, in terms of the, the, the final judgment, the war of the great day of God, uh, God the Almighty. So chapter 16 focuses on the, the content of the, uh, the, seven, the seven bowls, and again, we see that the Lord God, the Almighty, is the one on the throne, the one that is distinguished from the Lamb, because the Lamb is actually going to be the one leading the charge back down to the Battle of Armageddon. And we see this in Revelation 19. Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude, like the sound of many waters, like the sound of many peals of thunder, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Talking about the Father. He's going to reign, but he reigns through the Son, who's going to be the one who is the Davidic King, the Messiah, who reigns. Verse 7, Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to Him. Who's the Him? God the Father. For the marriage of the Lamb, it's got to be, the Him can't be the Lamb, because of what's said there. So the rain, the Lord God, the Almighty reigns, can't be, that's the Him, that can't be the Lamb, has come and His bride has made herself uh, ready. Then we see uh, verse 15, talking about the battle of Armageddon, from out of His mouth, that's the Messiah, comes a sharp sword, so that He may strike down the nations, He will rule them with a rod of iron, where does that come from? Psalm 2.9, Jesus Christ rules him with a rod of iron. He treads the winepress, not of his wrath, but of the wrath of God the Almighty, the Father. Revelation 21.22, this is the new heavens and new earth. I saw no temple in it for the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb. See, again, they're distinguished. The term God the Almighty always refers to the Father. The Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. Uh, so, what we see here is this, this doctrine of perichoresis, which is that there's a distinction between the Father and the Son, but the Father reigns, the Son reigns. The Father and the Son are viewed so closely together at times that they both do, are, are pictured as doing the same thing. Now, we come down to verse 18, and... I'll come back to that and wrap this up next time because we're already out of time. And this is the final uh, final battle, but it summarizes what's going to happen between 11 and chapter 19 when the Lord Jesus Christ establishes, finally establishes his kingdom. So we'll wrap this up next time. We'll also be able to get into 
the next chapter. Let's uh, bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, we're thankful for this opportunity to study these things, to see the patterns that go through Scripture, to realize that even though there are times on this earth and in the history of the human race that things look very bleak, things are seem out of control, but they are not. You are in control. And just as you were completely in control when Jesus was arrested and crucified, so you are in complete control now, and you will eventually establish your kingdom. And it is our role to grow and mature as believers and to be a faithful witness during this time to prepare for that future uh, time of ruling and reigning with the Lord Jesus Christ and his kingdom. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.